I bet you have heard a bunch of different preachers in your lifetime. All different kinds, all different styles, right? You got the polished intellectuals, the pulpit pounders, the laid back, just talkers, the seminary professors, and those iconic storytellers. What makes for good preaching? I wonder what it was like to hear the Apostle Paul preach. What was his style? What would that have been like to hear him preach? Well, our sermon text gives us a glimpse into Paul's 18-month ministry preaching in uh, Corinth. We're looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 2 this morning, verses 1 through 5. So please take your copy of God's Word, turn to 1 Corinthians 2. We're going to be looking at the first five verses, and this is our seventh study in 1 Corinthians so far. We'll end up having about 30 or so. It's been a wonderful study so far. But as we study this portion of Scripture this morning, here's my prayer. My prayer is that we would understanding what we would understand what God says is good preaching. 1 Corinthians 2, 1 through 5. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. That's God's words. So in ancient Corinth, public oration was a sport. Just like the uh, gladiators fought it out in the Colosseum with weapons, the sophist battled in the public square with words. Sophists were professional orators. They were teachers who would specialize in a, in a particular subject, and they were known for their skill of arguing with conviction. They would come to Corinth, uh, especially during the Ismithian Games, seeking to establish their reputation as a professional speaker. So if you could just go back to about A.D. 50s, Imagine yourself in ancient Corinth with all the hustle and bustle of the, of the Isthmian games at that time, tourists, vendors, there in the public square. You would also see professional orators known as sophists. The sophists would be escorted in with much enthusiasm. They would give a high-minded address using rhetorical allusions to demonstrate their persuasiveness 
as a speaker. Some people absolutely loved this. Plutarch, the philosopher, on the other hand, despised the showmanship of the, quote, wretched sophists competing for the applause of the crowd. But the wealthy and elite, they actually booked these guys to entertain their guests between courses at dinner. Can you imagine, instead of violins uh, playing, here's a sophist giving some kind of a, of a sophisticated, persuasive argument over dinner. So when Paul, in chapter 2, verse 1, look there, when Paul says, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, Paul's reminding the church that he did not come to Corinth like one of the professional sophists, presenting the gospel with high-sounding rhetoric or cleverness. Instead, Paul explains his commitment in preaching in verse 2. His ministry of preaching in verse 3 and 4. And his goal in preaching, in verse 5. So let's take those one at a time, and then after we see what Paul says here explicitly, we're going to see how that applies to our church corporately and to you as a Christian individually. First of all, in verse 2, Paul explains his commitment in preaching. Look there in verse 2. He says, rather than coming to town as one of these professional orators, these sophists, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Paul knew the messaging that worked in Corinth. He knew what Corinth wanted. They wanted another showman. They wanted another guy with clever rhetoric, and persuasive speech to come to town and wow the crowds, argue with the other philosophers, and win the applause. Paul knew that the people of Corinth, just like the people in Ephesus where Timothy ministered, had itching ears. Paul knew that they were accumulating for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. He knew that the people then, just like the people today, just like the people here in this room, just like the people that you work, were looking for the secrets to the blessed life. They were looking for the principles for success. According to the Bible, of course, they were, they were looking for guidance into a deeper, more meaningful spiritual experience. But Paul's firm decision in coming to Corinth His settled resolve, his commitment was to preach Christ and him crucified because, as we learned last week, the cross of Christ is the wisdom and power of God for all of life. Look back at chapter 1, verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but 
To us who are being saved, it is what? The power of God. Do you see that in verse 18? It's the cross of Christ that's the power of God, not life principles, not spiritual enlightenment and mysticism. Verse 22. Jews, they, they demand signs. Greeks are seeking after wisdom, but verse 23. We preach Christ crucified. Christ crucified is a stumbling block to the Jews and it's folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is what? Read it with me. The power of God and the wisdom of God. Verse 30. And because of God, church, you are in Christ Jesus. And Christ Jesus has become for us Wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. Those who have absolutely nothing to offer God are connected with Christ, and that changes everything. So that now, because of grace alone, faith, alone, in Christ alone, those who have nothing have everything in Christ. Paul says his commitment, verse 2, is I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. What does that mean? Did Paul never speak about any other doctrine or any other topic Come to church, Paul just speaks about Christ and Christ crucified. Next Sunday, Christ and Christ crucified. It's not that Paul never spoke of any other doctrine or any other topic. It's that he applied the cross of Christ to every other topic and every doctrine. And we see this modeled throughout his letters, the epistles. For example, just read Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, read Romans, read the rest of the Corinthians. And you're going to find out that when Paul talked about marriage, he applied the cross. Which calls husbands to love their wives sacrificially as Christ loved the church. So Paul talked about marriage, but he applied the cross of Christ as the wisdom and power of God. And that same cross of Christ that that calls men to love their wives sacrificially calls wives to respond with submission and respect, just like the church responds to Christ. In another place, when Paul talked about relationships, he applied the cross, which, which calls us to have the mind of Christ who thought more of others than he did himself. And so he took on the form of a servant. He humbled himself and he became obedient even to death, death on the cross. So when Paul thinks relationships and how you and I should relate to each other and how you should think about other people, he doesn't just think arbitrarily, what does the Bible say about that? That would be fine to do. But Paul says, I decided to know one thing. What does the cross of Christ say about relationships? Here's what the cross says 
If you follow Jesus, Jesus thinks more about other people than he does himself. He sacrifices himself for other people. That's how you ought to come to church. When Paul talked about being offended and having somebody sin against you, we don't even have to leave our own home to have that happen, do we? I mean, that's, that's what families are made of, is sinning on each other regularly within the four walls of our own home. We sin against each other all the time. When Paul talks about offenses, he applies the cross, which calls us to what? Forgive one another as God in Christ forgave you. There is no forgiveness without the cross. The cross matters in your relationships with each other. Apply the cross. When, when Paul says, I decided to know nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified, he means that he takes the cross as the prime and central message of everything that God does in his wisdom and power. When he talked about finances, he applied the cross, which calls us to earn and give joyfully and sacrificially. Why? Because Christ was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that through his poverty you might become rich. Every topic can find its roots and its substance in the cross of Christ. Church, what we need is the application of the cross for all of life, not a diet of character studies, life lessons, and leadership principles. And yet when we go to the Christian bookstore, that's all we find. Well, not all we find, but boy, do they ever fill the shelves, don't they? It's what my shelves used to be full of. Not cross-centered material. All kinds of lessons for life. Paul's commitment was to cross-centered preaching, preaching because the cross of Christ is the wisdom and power of God. Number two, look in verse three and four, and we'll see Paul's ministry of preaching. Verse three and four. What was it like to hear the apostle Paul preach? I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power. Paul's ministry was not that of a professional orator. Verse 1, he says, I didn't come proclaiming to you the gospel, the testimony of God, with high-sounding rhetoric, lofty speech, or cleverness, wisdom. His idea was not to be impressive and impress you with his ability or his message. But verse 3, he says, I was actually with you in weakness and in fear and trembling. My speech and my message, they were not in plausible words of wisdom. Plausible words of wisdom is the the clever messaging that is designed to produce results. Clever messaging, 
plausible words of really designed to, to grab a hold of your heart and tug at those emotions. You know, if you can get them laughing, if you can get them crying, then you can get them to do just about anything. Paul's contrasting himself here with the professional, self-promoting sophists performing in Corinth. Cross-centered preaching, Paul says, is not an attempt to please the audience. It's it's not based on the style and the ability of the speaker. But what is it? Verse 3, Paul's ministry of preaching was, in a word, humble. I was with you, verse 3 in weakness, in fear, with much trembling. Humility. Paul ministered in weakness, likely physical weakness. The guy got beat up just about everywhere he went. But certainly, When Paul says, I was with you in weakness, he's contrasting that against the strength of his own ability as a professional orator. Paul says, I was ministering to you in fear and trembling, much trembling. It's not because he was a novice. Paul was educated. He had the doctorate. He was excellent at what he did. Where'd the fear and trembling come from? He probably ministered in the light of his responsibility before God to fulfill his calling, to deliver the the treasure of the gospel of Christ to the unreached peoples of the world. So Michael Bullmore describes Paul's ministry of preaching like this, a simple and unaffected style which draws no attention to itself. The opposite of the sophists who came to town. Have you ever listened to a preacher who it seemed like he was trying to draw attention to himself? It seemed like he was trying to persuade you by the power of his speech, the cleverness of his illustrations and his outlines, Paul says he had cross-centered preaching communicated in humility to ensure something. Look there at the end of verse 4. Cross-centered preaching communicated in humility is a demonstration of the power of the Spirit, not a demonstration of the power of the speaker. Verse 4. My speech, my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power. Here's the important lesson for us today. It's the spirit of God who does the work of God through the word of God. A servant of God who does not have The power of the Spirit of God? Useless. It's the Spirit of God who does the work of God through the Word of God. And that means 
that effective preaching begins with earnest prayer. Brian Chappell reminds pastors like me, public ministry true to God's purposes requires devoted prayer life. We should not expect our words to acquaint others with the power of the Spirit if we have not met with Him. Paul's ministry of preaching was a ministry of humility that sort of just tried to get out of the way, draw no attention to self, so that it's a demonstration of the power of the Spirit to do the work of God. And he saw that happen over and over again. He wrote to the church at Thessalonica. He said, We also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, that's really important. The word of God doesn't just fall down from heaven. It comes through faithful ministers, faithful Christians. The the ministry of the word is vital. It's important. It's, It's significant. It's God's means. We're the ambassadors, the the spokesmen for Christ. You, in your home, at your workplace, me here, in this place, in, in counseling, whatever. Paul says, we thank God constantly for this. When you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but what it really is, the word of God which is at work in you believers. Paul's preaching, his ministry. What was it like to listen to Paul? You would have heard him in weakness and fear and in much trembling without showing off his own abilities in order to get out of the way and let God's spirit do God's work. Through God's word in verse five, so that we saw his commitment, we saw his ministry. Now we see his goal. What is the goal of preaching? Have you ever thought about how weird it is that we come together every week and listen to a guy talk to us for about 52 minutes? And I say 52 because I always want to be in the 40s, but I always end up about 52. Except for today. What's the goal of preaching? Paul's goal in preaching was verse 5, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Cross-centered preaching, communicated in humility, ensures that our faith rests in God's power, not man's wisdom. If it's the dynamics and the antics of the preacher, then I'm good as long as I follow that guy. But cross-centered preaching, communicated in humility so that the speaker is getting out of the way to allow God's spirit to, to do God's work in God's people ensures to the best of our human ability that the faith of the church rests in something 
What do you trust? Really, really trust? I hope my, my earnest prayer and desire is that when you listen to me teach God's word, that you end up trusting the power of God through the cross of Christ, not yourself. You can't trust yourself. I hope that you will trust in God's power to save you and to sanctify you and to redeem you, not in the programs of the church. Not in, certainly, any one of your elders. But trust in the power of God, not the wisdom of man. Here's the big lesson. Cross-centered preaching. Communicated in humility ensures that our faith rests in the power of God, not the wisdom of man. Now, we could spend all day just thinking about how we can apply that to our church. But this morning, I'd just like to make about two major applications for us as a church and for you as a Christian. Number one, church. Let's commit ourselves to cross-centered preaching. Will you do that with me? Let's not just have the elders committed to that. Let's have a church fully, wholeheartedly, passionately committed to cross-centered preaching. When we really believe that the cross of Christ is the wisdom and power of God, then we'll never want to get away from it. All we'll want to do is we'll want to keep going back to the person and work of Jesus Christ and applying that to every area of our life. And so that helps determine what we do when we gather here on Sundays. That's what our worship service is about. It's a word-saturated, Christ-focused, cross-centered. If you just want to keep going down, it's saturated with the word, focused on Christ, centered on the cross. That's why we sing the songs that we do. That's why we do ancient things like confess creeds to keep the cross of Jesus Christ ever before our eyes because that's the power and wisdom of God. And friends, this determines not just our theology, but it determines our philosophy of ministry. What do we do? What do we invest in as a church? What do we put our effort into as a church? Not necessarily what we think works, not what people are looking for, listening for. We're here in town, and we've determined one thing. We're going to preach Christ and Him crucified. Why? Because that's the power and wisdom of God. And we know that that's what everyone needs, even if that's not what everyone wants. So let's all of us commit ourselves to that as a church. But you too, as an individual Christian, you too, commit yourself 
to Christ and him crucified. So when you when you sit down and you read your Bible, what are you looking for? You see Christ in all of Scripture. You see Jesus Christ as the fulfillment of Scripture. And that helps us when we read stories like Joshua. We we don't walk away from Joshua thinking, I'm going to be a good leader. We see Joshua as an image of Christ. We don't see David and, and we don't teach our kids, be like David. We say, do you see? Do you see King David? That's King Jesus. He's the one who conquers our Giants like sin and death. We need King Jesus. We're like the Israelites cowering in the bushes over there, eating our cheese sandwiches. Sure. We read the Bible to see Jesus Christ and specifically his cross in everything. Parents, this is what your kids need. Your kids need Christ and him crucified, not a bunch of Bible stories, not a bunch of life lessons to teach them character traits. Character's good, but rooted in Christ. Show the cross. Let's commit ourselves to cross-centered preaching cross-centered reading, cross-centered teaching, cross-centered discipleship in our homes. Number two, I think one of the things that this teaches us is that not only do we commit ourselves to this, but we proclaim, we share, we talk about the gospel student to student, pastor to church, husband to wife, We proclaim the gospel in humility. And what do we depend on? Not my skill. Not your ability to communicate it rightly. When you share with your neighbors, you don't walk away thinking to yourself, man, I really blew it. I didn't do a very good job. You walk away thinking, I just planted a seed and the power's in the seed. God's spirit is going to do God's work through God's word. That's your confidence. Parents, that's your confidence with your kid. It's not in your ability to rear them correctly or to teach them everything just right. The power of God is in the substance of the preaching or of the talk not the skill of the communicator. If we really believe that, then that changes how we come to church. That that changes the podcasts that we listen for. That changes um, the books that we pick up. It, It just does. So we don't necessarily always coming uh, come to a church, we don't choose a church necessarily based on the best preacher. See, it's not about the eloquence of the preacher. It's not about the power of the speaker, but it is about the power of God's spirit. So. Rob Spinney wrote a little booklet. We're going to give everybody one today as you leave called how to survive your pastor's sermons. 
He wrote this before he came here, I might add. Not how to get more out of, not how to enjoy, but how to survive your pastor's sermons. Six ways to make pulpit messages more profitable for your soul. Do you understand that preaching is the symbiotic relationship between preacher and listener? Church. This is not a one-sided relationship where I do all of the talking. It's just as much how you listen, how you receive, and what you do about it as it is how I communicate the substance and the method or the the way that I communicate. So Rob summarizes how to survive your pastor's sermons with these six remedies. Number one, listen to the weekly Sunday sermon as if your life depended on it. Is that how you come to church right now? Do you see the preaching of the cross as the wisdom and power of God and you're saying, I've got to have it. I don't want to miss it. I can't be absent. I got to get there. Listen to the weekly Sunday sermon sermon as if your life depended on it. Number two, look for God's remedies for sin and his instructions for living in a sinful world. Look for that. Look for God's remedies for sins and his instructions rather than all of the other things that we might see. Number three, I like this one. Expect. What do you expect when you come in? I would love to give you some time to actually write down what do you expect when you come to church? Expect to be taught by the Holy Spirit as you hear God's word proclaimed. Number four, be determined to listen. Be determined to listen regardless of the speaker's oratory skills. Be determined to listen past the preacher. We've all heard good ones. We've all heard bad ones. And most of them are right in the middle, frankly. But be determined to hear more than the preacher. Hear God's word. Number five. A profitable Bible message is one that delivers life-transforming truth. So number six, pre-commit. That means I got to do something before I get here. That means I actually have to think about what I'm going to do before I ever come to church. That means Saturday, pardon me, Sunday starts on Saturday. I know that sounds Jewish, but it does. Good. They had a good thing going there. That means that before you ever come here, you pre-commit to do something. Pre-commit to apply and obey what God's word has said as it is set forth in the sermon. Oh, man. 
I think maybe you're not just going to survive your pastor's sermons, but you're going to thrive under your pastor's sermons if you do those six things. We're going to give you this little booklet on the way out as a good reminder and hopefully to encourage your soul for this goal. What's the goal? Commitment, our ministry, but what's the goal? So that your faith does not rest in you. So that you're not trusting your ability to do right, be better, do more. But your faith rests in what's already been done for you. That you tap into by faith and are united with and benefit from through the Lord Jesus Christ. That's good preaching. Let's pray together. Father, I want to thank you for Paul's ministry because here we are 2,000 years later benefiting from it. Thank you for how he modeled cross-centered preaching communicated in humility as the basis of our faith. I pray that uh, as we commit ourselves to this, as, as we make this our ministry and our goal, that you would bear fruit in us as a church. Please bear fruit. Please make disciples through Winchester Baptist Church, through the preaching here, through the preaching downstairs in the children's ministries. I pray that you would please bless and bear fruit through every one of the parents who commit themselves to teach their children Christ and him crucified. Please, God, make disciples of all of the children of our church. I pray that you would bear fruit in the lives of the neighbors who share the gospel, not worried about how good they are at it, but just share the gospel as your wisdom and power to change lives of their neighbors and those who go to work in the same way. God, please, we thank you. But more than Paul's example, we thank you for the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ who accomplished everything, who fulfilled all of your promises for us. And that is by grace through faith. So I pray that even this morning you would strengthen our faith in your grace as we have listened today. Praise be to the Lord Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray.